what a, what a day that's going to be, amen? Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we want our lives, our actions, our obedience to match our words. We do long to have hearts that are filled and saturated with love for you and that it shows itself in our daily walk of obedience. Father, we humble our hearts now before your word and we thank you for your, your presence, um, both the Lord Jesus here represented by his body and the Holy Spirit here taking the word and applying it to your church. Help us to grow now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I... Um, as we get going here this morning, I, I have to admit, I got my feelings hurt a little bit this morning. I was um, coming in with the music and early on, and before the early service started, uh, Hector Zavala, who's on staff here, I don't know what he was thinking, right in front of me, waved the sermon notes, recognizing that there were four panels on the pages there, and said, I think we will be here till two o'clock in the afternoon. I reminded him that whoever it was that brought him into this world could take him out of this world. (laughs) Uh, The idea behind the lengthy notes is actually to assist us today uh, so that we aren't here until 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I can't fool you or trick you at all. You know me well, and you also have stood in that foyer, boxed up, waiting to get in as we ran a little bit long on the second service. But I trust that uh, the Word of God and our time together will not only be most meaningful to us, but it will actually be an extension of our worship together. I do admit about our passage today, as I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 5 and 6, that um, this is a really difficult passage of Scripture. If you were here last week, I showed you a picture of me drilling rock in my basement, um, and I equated that to how difficult this passage was and how I'm drilling and blasting and drilling and blasting almost exactly where I'm standing is now my dungeon desk. And there I am uh, late last night still working. And that's not a posed picture in the sense of A, the mess, or B, the number of commentaries and notebooks. I have at least a nine or ten that I have been reading. It is true that this passage of Scripture um, that begins in, in Hebrews 5:11, runs through chapter 6, verse 12. It's the third of about five warning passages in Hebrews, is indeed one of the most difficult passages in all of the Bible to understand, and commentators don't agree. I'm fully aware that some of you have, a, there are a variety of kinds of study Bibles in the chairs this morning, and not all the study Bibles will agree on how we're to take these verses and so um, we're going to trust the Lord to lead us and guide us. I'm, I'm grateful for the pause last week and skipping and coming to this week. It was helpful to me. Uh, furthermore, um, I, I also wanted to offer to you um, an individual that if you don't agree with what I'm going to say this morning, we have a resident... Hebrews guru in Dr. Shupi. And if you don't like my approach here, you don't um, get what I'm saying this morning, make an appointment, have Dr. Shupi over to your house for supper. He'll love taking a couple hours and explaining everything to you. He did tell me, by the way, that just verses four through six should take about an hour to explain. And we're doing a whole lot more than that this morning. So buckle in and uh, get ready. By the way, for those of you who are newer to us, We do, on purpose, commit to preaching through books of the Bible. 
I just thought I would mention for just a minute that that's called expository preaching. We have an expositional pulpit. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't deal with topics. Um, For example, all summer long, we dealt with a topical sequence on prayer, a series sermon all summer topically, poking around our Bibles on prayer. But our general commitment here at Fellowship Bible Church and for our pulpit ministry is that we start into a book of the Bible and we work our way through. What brought that to my mind to remind some of you, you might not be familiar with that, uh, not many, not as many churches today do that as in the old days, um, but that expositional pulpit or expository preaching, it brings us to texts like this. So that when we dive into a book like the book of Hebrews, And we are preaching through the reason we're in this text today is because it's the next text in our book. It's our next study. And so we can't avoid it. We have to deal with it. It's God's word and we will count on the Holy Spirit and using the word of God to encourage the people of God today. I thought that it would be maybe a little bit of an encouragement to you to remind you. And if you have your notes positioned as we... Uh, right before we read our text here, let me remind you just briefly of three considerations as to why God allowed the Holy Spirit uh, to place in our scriptures certain passages that are defined by complexity, like our passage today. Why does God allow hard passages to be in the Bible? After all, aren't we supposed to understand God's word? Indeed, we are. Uh, Just quickly, a few thoughts. First of all, is the Holy Spirit himself, the Holy Spirit. It forces us, especially when we encounter a difficult passage of scripture, it forces us to depend upon the illumining work of the Holy Spirit as we study God's word. Psalm 119 verse 18 says, the psalmist prayed there, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law or your word. That's our prayer, isn't it? Father, open our eyes that we might benefit, that we might gain wonderful things as we study your word together. Secondly, hard work, hard work. And indeed, it's been drilling rock and blasting here to get to the core and the understanding of the passage Let me just read what Pastor John Piper wrote concerning this aspect of difficult passages, and it takes hard work sometimes. He wrote, God did not scatter his pearls about for us to pick up as though we were picking strawberries in the woods. God buries his secrets deep, so we have to dig for them. It is those who are willing to work hard who will get the meaning of the hard texts. I think he's right. And then finally, humility. Humility, and I know that God has humbled me through this study. I have benefited from the hard work, um, and, and it has been a humbling experience. The hard texts keep us, don't they, from being arrogant in our knowledge of Scripture. I have a passage that I often will inscribe when I sign a young man's Bible who's graduating from high school, or when we're giving a Bible, or if I sign something, I will often sign, live for Jesus, Pastor Van, and below that I'll write Isaiah 66 to B. Last half of Isaiah 66 to says, this is the one I esteem, says the Lord. He who is humble and contrite in spirit trembles at my word. And so today we aren't goofing around. We're not joking here. We want to have a heart of humility. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 25 verse 9, um, 
He leads the humble in what is right, and he teaches the humble his way. And so we have a humble spirit as we open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5 today. I have some more considerations that I want to lay as a foundational groundwork to our text today, but let's read. Let's read our passage. Uh, I've already mentioned that this is the third of five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. It begins in verse 11 of chapter 5, and it's going to end with verse 12. For the sake of time, we're going to stop where we're going to end our message today in verse 8. We'll pick up with verse 9 next week. Let's begin with 511. Follow along in your copy of God's Word. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain. Okay, what he's talking about here, just stop a minute. If you look right above, he's, he's getting ready to explain to them how Christ, our high priest, is superior to the priesthood of Aaron because he's of the order of Melchizedek, that strange name, that strange guy. And he's getting ready to break into some significant teaching about Melchizedek. And he points out, but that's hard for you to understand, back to our scripture reading, about this, Melchizedek and Christ being of the order of Melchizedek as our high priest. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. He's scolding them. It's a warning passage. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles or ABCs of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, now notice as it segues into chapter 6, verse 1, there's a connecting word there. It's all part of the same passage. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Verse 3, and this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible. Here's the most difficult part of this text, verse 4 through 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt." For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. What an interesting passage of scripture we have before us today. Let me mention a couple more things for consideration that lay a foundation to our mindset and at least my mindset as we head into this passage. I've already shared a few thoughts as to why God allows difficult passages to be in our Bible. Secondly, number two, our second consideration is what I've been mentioning is that this is a serious warning passage and it's about the importance of maturing spiritually. So regardless of your understanding of this passage and who it is that falls away and who can't come back for repentance and so forth, 
You need to understand that the point of the entire passage is unmistakable. And it is this. The point of the passage is, it is a very serious matter to stop growing spiritually. That's his point. I want you to start growing and maturing. It's a very serious matter to stop growing spiritually. Let me say, let me finish that thought by saying this. The reason it's so serious to stop growing spiritually is because spiritual immaturity leads to disobedience and disobedience removes the blessing of God from your life. So it really matters whether you're growing spiritually or not. Thirdly, I want to remind you that this language of falling away and being unable to repent and the warning about falling away, number three, is always is already a word that the writer has used in our context here. Notice in 3.12, just flip your page to 3.12, notice that he's already said in a warning passage here in chapter 3, he wrote, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. He's already warned them as brothers in Christ that through doubt and disbelief that they could fall away from their obedience and their place of blessing. He's using here, as we'll mention several times, he's using the word picture of a historical note from Numbers 14 where the Israelites who came out of Egypt wandering in the desert because of their disobedience hardened their hearts. They fell away from the place of blessing. And in verse 18, he uses strong language for them, reminding them of them. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? He's already using this strong language in chapters 3 and 4. Notice verse chapter 4, verse 11. And notice how he speaks here. Chapter 4, verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. He's talking about sticking with it, growing, not falling away, so that because by the same sort of disobedience, what same sort of disobedience is that? That's a reference to Numbers 14, the children of Israel in the desert, because of their disobedience, never made it to the promised land, but wandered for 40 years until they died off. Now, God wasn't through with them. He still made their shoes to last. He made their clothes to last. He fed them food every day for 38 years after this time. But he shut off the possibility of them going in to the promised land, even after they came to a place where they wanted to go in themselves. No, because of their lack of maturity, their lack of obedience, their disobedience, and their dissatisfaction with God's word to them, even saying they wanted to go back to Egypt, God said, okay, you don't get to the place of blessing that I've promised for you. Keep that in mind. That's number four. The backdrop for this teaching, our context of Hebrews chapter three and four, which lays the groundwork for chapters five and six, is Numbers chapter 14. The context is Numbers chapter 14. And it's about the children of Israel who fell in the wilderness. 
And it seems apparent by the way the author writes that he knows that his readers understand this and they know exactly what he is saying. And I'm more convinced of that than ever that though we know so little about the Hebrews and we know little about the author of this book, I really believe that they understood each other at a high level. He's going to say things to them that are hard to understand and I'm convinced that the recipients of the letter knew exactly what he was talking about and there was no miscue between them. Well, our outline works like this. Starting at 5, chapter 11, it's a wake-up call. It's the beginning of the third warning passage. Number one in our outline, wake up. Number two in our outline, beginning with chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, wise up. And continuing to end our text and concluding our text today, chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, watch out. So he wants them to wake up. He wants them to wise up. And then he said, you better watch out. And he gives them some very serious words to consider. It won't take us long to recognize the wise up passage. That's chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. He says about this, I have much to say. We've already read it, but it's hard to explain why. Because they have become dull of hearing. Though they ought to be teachers, they ought to be maturing. They are still just focused on the ABCs of the text of, of their knowledge of God. And he needs somebody to teach them again these basic principles of the oracles of God. And so the summary is right there. Get off the milk and get on to meat. Get off the milk, get on to meat. You guys are on your binky and you need to be eating steak. There's something wrong with this picture. I want to point out that the key phrase in this section is in verse 11 where it says, you have become dull of hearing. The reason he can't address them the way he wants to is because they have allowed themselves to stop growing and he calls it being dull of hearing. If you let your eyes go over to chapter 6 and verse 12, he's going to say almost an identical thing only with a little bit different phrase. He says, so that you may not be sluggish. So that you may not be sluggish. You have become dull of hearing and that bookends... This book ends with his concluding remarks in 6.12, so that you may not be sluggish. And I want to point out that 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 is a unit. That 5.11 through 6.12 is all tied together, talking about the same thing to the same people. If you'd like to hear the message that I preached on chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, it's entitled Arrested Development. It was June 2nd, 2019. You can go to our website and click on the archives there, and you can listen to an audio version of it. We now find ourselves at the threshold of chapter 6, and we're saying that he's saying to them, wise up, wake up, get rid of the bottle, get on meat, start growing, now you need to wise up, start growing, learning. I don't really have these two verses outlined, but all I'm going to do is just click them off and break them down in pieces. Let's read 6, 1, and 2 again. Therefore, you see, because you are not growing, you're immature, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. Now notice how he's let us leave. He includes himself with them. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings and laying on of hands the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Let's just stop there. He wants them to wise out, wise up, and for them to wise up and begin to mature and begin to learn and to grow 
in a greater knowledge of their understanding of what it means to follow Christ, he says right away, there's some things you need to leave behind. Notice there, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines. Let us leave. The meaning here is not that of abandoning the basic teachings of Christianity, but rather the necessity of recognizing the need to grow beyond this elementary level. He's not saying don't talk about Christ, don't talk about baptism, don't talk about judgment, don't talk about the resurrection, but he's saying these elementary things. So whatever he means by this list that he gives them, and people talk about what does he mean, what's he talking about here, whatever this list is, it's clear that he wants them to go beyond that list. Leave it behind. Go on, verse B. Notice, leave the elementary doctrines of Christ. And then the next phrase, 1B, 6, 1B, go on to maturity. Go beyond the basics and mature in your faith. And, and I believe right here that the recipients of the letter understood exactly what he was talking about. And then he says, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. Let's take just a minute and comment on that phrase, dead works. What's he talking about? Dead works. The NIV might put it, has it acts that lead to death. He talks about this in chapter 9, verse 14, these dead works. Uh, I'm going to assume, and I think what he's talking about, are people who have come to Christ, they haven't matured, they focus on some elementary basics of their salvation, And even like in applying it to the church today, 30 years later, they still don't know their Bible. They still don't understand deeper spiritual truths, but they understand the basics of salvation. But many times they have kind of adopted this element in their lives where they do things that will please God. And they are ultimately, when they stand before God, dead works. Let me illustrate it this way. One time I was called up to the ICU Uh, to approach a gentleman who was very near death. He was very old. He was nearing death. And I I was asked to go see him and see if I could talk to him about his salvation and make sure he understood his salvation. He was quite a storyteller, and he laid there in the ICU. He's pretty alert that day. And he told me many stories about his involvement in church, how much he had done for church through the years, how he had bought pews, how he had worked around the church, laid brick for the church, all kinds of things about the church. I finally interrupted him, and I said, But pal, you understand, don't you, that none of that is worthwhile before God? So is it a good thing to work in your church? Absolutely. That's what our message was about last week. It was a good thing to work in our church. But when you stand before God and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? Don't tell him about all the times you helped take the offering or what you put in the offering or how many times you shoveled snow or whether you bought the brick for the church or the stained glass window for the church. Don't tell him that because that's all dead works when it comes to your salvation. It doesn't get you in. Only grace through faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, by grace, through our faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, assures us of heaven. What the choir sang about, sins atoned and heaven gained. No works of my own, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So I think he's referencing to what immature believers often do. They latch on to things that they think are pretty important spiritually and that might impress God, but they're nothing but dead works ultimately. 
Now, I want you to notice how he breaks down the passage. In verses 1c, the end of verse 1 through verse 2, the writer now is going to be very specific, and he gives three examples in sets of two. He gives three sets of two examples of what he wants them to leave behind. These are the things that they're evidently stuck on with their baby bottles, and he wants them to leave them behind. And notice how there are three couplets here. Let's go back and read verse 1 again. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Here they are. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and, and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. It breaks down into three pairs Notice what they are. These three examples in groups of two is where they are stuck. And he says, you need to move beyond these. Number one is about repentance and faith. Repentance and faith, both good, important things. We repent of our sin. Faith, faith in the word of God, faith in Jesus Christ, faith in the shed blood of Jesus for our salvation. Washings and the laying on of hands washings and the laying on of hands. Your Bible might say baptisms. It could include Christian baptism or baptism after salvation. He might be talking about the baptism of John. There were numerous kinds of baptisms or washings under Judaism. Remember in our context, he's dealing with a group of people who have come to Christ out of Judaism. Judaism had a form of repentance Judaism had a form of faith. Judaism had washings. Judaism had laying on of hands ceremonially. And then resurrection and eternal judgment. In the old covenant, they believed in a resurrection and a coming judgment. You see it in Daniel. You see it in Ezekiel. You see it in Job. What's he talking about here? Because surely he's not talking about that it's unimportant for us to remember our repentance, for us to have a growing faith, for us to to be baptized and to understand what our baptism means and and maybe the laying on of hands for a special mission or for ordination, for church membership or placement in in an office in the local church. The resurrection? Are you kidding me? That's That's the linchpin doctrine of the church. He's not saying forget the resurrection of Christ. So whatever it is he wants them to know, they understand. And these three sets of two, he's saying, for you to mature, you need to get unstuck from these and you need to move on. I suspect in my parentheses there in the notes that it is possible that the writer is challenging the Hebrews to move beyond their understanding of these doctrines and practices as taught in Judaism in the Old Testament manner. And to press on in the new covenant under Christ, they were maybe bringing some of the trappings related to baptism, the trappings related to to, uh, uh, repentance or uh, these doctrines of the resurrection and coming judgment. Maybe they were getting things mixed up. Maybe they didn't want to let go of some of their understanding under Judaism. And he's saying, look, you got to put that stuff behind you and you need to enter into a full-blown understanding of what these things mean in the new covenant. It's not really clear. It's part of what makes this passage difficult. What's he talking about? Maybe that's helpful. Now, verse 3 is an interesting sentence, and it stands alone, and it's difficult. And this we will do if God permits. There it is. Now, wait a minute. 
If we're wanting to grow in Christ, he's calling on them to mature. Clearly, that's what he's calling on them to do. He wants them to leave some things behind and to move forward. He's just made a list of six things as an example that he wants them to leave behind. And then he said, and we're going to do this. Notice that he said, we. And we are going to do this, he said, if God permits. What is that all about? I want you to look to your notes here in earnest and follow along as I read because that is a very difficult sentence to understand. Why did he say it? What it is there for? Because how could it be that God would not always permit someone to grow in Christ and to mature? So I found it very helpful what Dr. David Allen out of Southwestern Seminary in one of my commentaries, the New American Commentary, he wrote, and so I'm just quoting him. And I think it helps make sense of this. He says that this one sentence, verse 3, look, as to what we will do this if God permits. In the NIV, it's God permitting we will do so. He says that our understanding of this sentence is critical to understanding verses 4 through 6, which are very difficult as well. Now, let me read. You follow along. The question of whether God will permit is crucial to our understanding of Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. This statement harks back to what was said in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. Remember I referenced that he talked about these can fall away. They fell away in the desert. Don't you fall away like that. And the reference to the Exodus generation's disobedience in the wilderness and subsequent consequence of God's judgment. That judgment namely was... They were not permitted to enter Canaan. He still blessed them for 38 years in many ways. Their shoes, their clothes didn't wear out, as I referenced earlier. He fed them every day. He showed them his presence. He showed them his power. They were his people. He was patient with them, even when they said, we want to go back to Egypt. But he did get to a place where... He said, okay, you are not going to fully enter the blessings of obedience. You are not going to enter my my rest. And there was a time when the children of Israel, in tears and weeping, said, let's go into the promised land. And God said, no way, you're not going. You cannot go there. Okay, let's finish the paragraph. Because the writer has in mind what he had written in Hebrews 3 and 4, he makes the statement, God permitting we will do so, NIV, or, and this we will do if God permits, ESV. The sense is, this is what it means, we will press on to maturity if God permits, for we know about those, the wilderness generation, whom God did not permit to press on and enter the promised land. And I think that captures the essence of the passage there. I want you to wake up. I want you to mature. It's a very serious thing to stop growing, my words now, because if you don't mature spiritually, you're going to be vulnerable to disobedience. And when you enter into disobedience, you remove yourself from God's blessing. He's not talking about losing salvation. He's talking about coming to a place where you are essentially worthless in the church. I've been trying to apply this in my thinking to the church, and I see people like this. They have for decades never gotten off of the basic fundamentals of their salvation. Yes, they claim to be saved. They claim they've been to the cross. They understand the substitutionary death of Christ, but they have never grown. 
And they keep talking about it, but some of them have morphed into their neighbors, their pagan neighbors. You ever notice that? People who haven't grown, and they claim to be Christian, and they come to church, but if you catch them off guard, their language is no different than their pagan neighbor. Their priorities are no different than their pagan neighbor. The things that they live for are really no different than their pagan neighbor. Are they saved or are they not saved? Well, they profess to be saved. In this case, they would be God's people. They haven't lost their salvation, but they've gotten to a place where they are not going to grow. God isn't even going to permit them. And in fact, in extreme cases, I believe, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, God kills them, takes them home. 1 John 5, there's a sin unto death. It's like, you are going nowhere so fast, it is over, your time is up. And they're going to enter the presence of the Lord, having wasted every opportunity to grow and produce for God's kingdom and church here on earth. And that is tragic. And it's very serious. Let's continue. We are now... Um, we are now moving into verses four through six, and this is the watch out section. All right. So where have we been? He said, wake up. You need to mature. You need to get rid of the binky baby bottle milk. You need to get on with meat to do that. You need to wise up to wise up. You've got to leave some things behind. He gives us six things that he illustrates, whatever they are. He wanted them to leave them behind and he wanted them to move forward with confidence and assurance so that they could clean out their dull ears and their sluggish ears so that they could be taught more things about the marvel and the wonder of Christ, our high priest. He's illustrating this through Numbers 14, and now we've made it to verse 4. For it is impossible, see this just continues, and this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible, here's why God might not permit it, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Wow. What's he talking about? It's interesting, isn't it? It's challenging. Regardless of what he's talking about, will you agree with me that verses 4 through 6 is strong language? It's strong language, isn't it? Now let's read our final two verses in our text. And will you agree with me that that's scary language? For land that has drunk the rain, verse 7, that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. We're going to stop our text there and pick it up, Lord willing, next week with verse 9. Regardless of what he's talking about, no matter how difficult it is to plumb the depths of this or to understand precisely what he's trying to say, you have to agree, don't you, with me that verses 4 through 6 are strong language, and verses 7 and 8 is a scary word picture. The author isn't really clear as to the identity of these who have fallen away. We know by the word choice that it is very serious, but what does it mean? Well, let's continue our study. Let's ask, who is this then? Who is this? And can we get clues from the text? Who is this that is falling away that cannot be restored to repentance? Who is it? It's the fallen. And notice... Okay, let's go go to four through six is where our eyes are focusing on our scripture. Our notes are nearby for reference. For it is impossible in the case 
of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them. Who is this? Well, one thing we know is that these fallen are described with these five participles, these five phrases, okay? Five words here, lines that describe who they are. This is very important in our study because it's going to tell us, are these believers? Are these unbelievers? Are these believers who look like unbelievers? Are these believers who lost their salvation? Who are they? Well, look what he says. In the case of those who have, number one, once been enlightened. Number two, tasted the heavenly gift. Number three, shared in the Holy Spirit. Number four, tasted the goodness of the word of God. Number five, by sentence structure, tasted the powers of the age to come or known about it. So one thing we know, whoever they are who have fallen away, this is the five-fold description of them. Bible study time. Hermeneutical principle. Hermeneutics is the Bible, is the science of Bible study. And it is this. If you don't know what a word means, the way the author's using a word, we don't know what it means, then we've got to look and see if the author used the word somewhere else already or will use it again. Is he going to use it? And how does he use it there? And does that shed light on how he's explaining this? If we if we can't find where the author himself uses the word in another place to shed light on it, we then have to look at the greater text of Scripture and say what other verses in the Bible might shed light on this. But for our sake today and in our study today, we see that our author has already used these words. And in fact, the way he uses these words is very helpful to shedding light on what he means. So where we are is asking who has fallen. He has five descriptions of who has fallen. And the first one is they are people who have once been enlightened. There was a time when they were enlightened. Now, if we look at chapter 10, verse 32, and please turn just a couple pages to chapter 10, verse 32. And we're not going to be here till two o'clock in the afternoon, um, but we will... Keep moving here, but we want to do a good job with our study. So you pay close attention, and I'll try to talk kind of fast, and we'll try to knock this out with understanding. Notice what he says. In 1032, he uses this same word, enlightened. Here it is. He's telling the same audience, the same people he's addressing in chapter 6, he's addressing in chapter 10, and he says, but I want you to recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better position and an abiding one. Is he talking to believers or what? Of course he's talking to believers there. And the point of their enlightening was the moment of their salvation. So let's go back to chapter 6. He used the word enlightening. Let's see if it fits. You have once been enlightened. It looks to me like it's the same way he used it. And so it implies, at the least, it implies that those who have fallen were enlightened. They are true believers. Next, he says, they have tasted of the heavenly gift or partaken of the heavenly gift, your Bible might say. 
So what does he mean by tasted? Is that like licking a lollipop just a little bit? Well, I, I, I tasted it, but I'm really not going to have it. Maybe drinking a sip and then get ready. We use the word taste that way. But how has he used it in our text already? Let's go to chapter 2, verse 9. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. Don't be lazy on me out there. You look. Chapter 2, verse 9. But we see him who for a little while, I wonder who him is. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Oh, there it is. We're talking about Jesus. He was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Did he just dabble in death? Did he just, did Jesus dabble in death or did he fully embrace death? Well, I think the word means that he experienced it fully. So I'm going to take from that word that back in chapter 6, when he's talking about people who've fallen away, who have tasted the heavenly gift, it means that they have experienced it fully. They have experienced it fully in the same way that Christ fully experienced death. Thirdly, they shared in the Holy Spirit. It's not far away from our text. Flip the page back to chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers... Or brethren, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Once again, I think he's talking to believers. Holy brothers. He's not talking about the household of Israel. These are who have shared in the heavenly calling. I think he's referencing believers. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. Holy brothers who share. He's talking about true believers, it seems to me. Back to chapter 6, our fourth expression is they have tasted the goodness of the word of God. I mean, if you're a true believer and you are enlightened, you don't suffer persecution with people who aren't saved. You don't let your stuff get plundered. If you're not a real Christian and you're just looking and posturing like a Christian, you don't get plundered. You don't let your stuff get taken away. You don't suffer persecution. That was underneath having once been enlightened when we looked at 1032. That's what had happened. Verse number four, have tasted the goodness of the word of God. Listen, that's, ex- that's an expression of people who have fully experienced the word of God. Number five, they have also tasted the powers of the age to come. They are understanding it. They are uh, thrilled by the understanding of what is to come. Sins atoned, heaven gained, embracing things to come. So our conclusion is What? Who is this that has fallen away? Well, they are described by these five phrases. It appears that they are believers. Now notice, in our conclusions, drawing our conclusions to understand who it is that fell away. Chapter 3, 12 and 4, 11, I already referenced in our introduction. He warned them not to fall away through hardness of heart. He was talking to believers. The author has already made this warning once. It was to believers not to repeat the same sin as the Israelites in the desert. That's Numbers 14. Do not fall in disobedience like those who are in the desert. Next bullet point. I believe that he has just described genuine believers who fall away in the sense of willful disobedience. I think he's talking about genuine believers who fall away like the those in the desert, out of willful disobedience to God. Furthermore, parenthetically, think with me. 
if they were not true believers, if they were unbelievers, some people say that they who fell away were posturing as believers, but they fell away. If they were unbelievers, how could they fall away from something they never possessed? He wouldn't use that language. Or why would the author be concerned with the spiritual maturity of non-believers? The whole point of the passage, remember, is to move on to maturity. It's chapter 6, verse 1. The author wouldn't call on unbelievers or people he thought were faking to mature in Christ. It would seem obvious for him to exhort non-believers to do what? To repent and to turn to Christ for salvation. It would have been easy for him to say that. Or... If they were believers who lost their salvation, we know that that, we talked about this two weeks ago, laying a foundation for this message, we know that if he's talking about those who were believers truly, but they fell away, meaning they lost their salvation, we know that that would contradict so many other passages of scripture. We just can't go there. It would also mean that once someone lost their salvation, they could never be saved again. Did you notice that in this passage? Look what it says. And have fallen away, it would be impossible, he says up in verse 4, down to verse 6, to restore them again to repentance. I don't want to disparage anybody, but my brothers, many of them are my brothers in Christ, who are leaders in the, in the Free Will Baptist, in the Nazarene, in the Assembly of God, in the uh, churches of God, churches that believe that in their basic doctrine, you can be saved And you can walk in and out of your salvation. You can walk out from underneath grace and you can walk back into grace. None of them, and they'll point to this passage sometimes, but none of them would say that once you've lost your salvation once, you can never come back to Christ. They, none of them believe that. They always preach, get saved again. Come forward this Sunday, get right with God. You've sinned, you've walked away. Your salvation is at risk. Come make sure you're saved. If they were going to follow through with that logic in this passage, they would have to say, sorry, bud, it's done. Once you missed and you're out, you fell, it's done. It's impossible for you to come back to repentance. I would also ask, where, where is there an unbeliever who still has breath in his body that doesn't have the possibility of salvation in him? And so we must move on. This... Uh, let's look at that, that uh, in the, under these arguments in the parentheses there. Or if they were believers who lost their salvation, that would contradict so many other passages of Scripture. It would also mean that once someone lost their salvation, they could never be saved again. So then someone will throw out, then maybe it's the unpardonable sin he's talking about. And right now the answer is just no. It's not. Okay? This is someone, final bullet point, under who they are. Who are these people described by these five expressions? They are someone who does not completely deny Christ, but they do fail to press on to spiritual maturity by disregard and disobedience to God's word. They are who he's been warning about in 3.12, 4.11, that like those in the desert fell away by their disobedience. Don't do that. So what happens to them? What's going to happen to them? 6-6, six, six. notice what it says. And these who have fallen away, it is impossible. We have to insert the word impossible because that's where he started the sentence up in verse 4. This is all one sentence. 
They have fallen away, verse 6. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him in contempt. He says it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. Just look at the notes. This is the point of the warning in this passage. It's the very point of the warning in this passage. It is illustrated in Numbers 14 by Israelites in the desert who fell short of entering God's rest and longed to return to Egypt. Ultimately, God did not allow them to enter even after they had decided on their own that they would like to enter. Their chance to enter was over. And yet, as I said, God still fed them. He clothed them. He took care of their shoes. They didn't wear out. He let his presence be known to them. The judgment on these Hebrew believers that are receiving our letter that we're studying is not loss of salvation, but it is judgment that is more of a strong discipline from God where they will then be limited in their capacity to grow spiritually. What does it mean then, stay with the notes and we'll click this off. What does it mean then, crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt? Well, obviously, this is not literal, so it's a metaphor or it's physical. It's a, it's a figure of speech. It's not physical or literal. It's a metaphor. Let me just read what I wrote. This is a strong statement of how serious it is when a believer intentionally, knowingly sins and doesn't care. The Israelites in the desert. The idea is that of wasting the work of Christ on the cross because of our willful sin. It is the same as shouting with the crowds to crucify him. It is showing contempt for the love of God in the sacrificial gift of salvation in Christ. It's what I said before. You've come to Christ. You haven't grown. You meant to grow. You didn't grow. You haven't paid attention. You look more like the world than you do Christ. You're beginning to look like your pagan neighbors. In fact, you even dabble back in the old ways that you used to live. You do things you used to do that were outside of Christ. But if I come to you and confront you, are you a Christian? Absolutely, I'm a Christian. I know I'm a Christian. But you keep returning to your vomit. Now 10 years goes by, then 20 years goes by, then 30 years goes by. And it is almost the same as you saying, the blood of Christ was wasted on me. It is just like I keep crucifying him because all I do is sin and live like my pagan neighbors. It's like I was in the crowd saying, I'll just crucify him because it's not going to do me any good because it's not going to bring about any kind of maturity in me. Move on with it, grow. And finally you get to a place where it can be extreme. In the, in the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 11, Paul warned them to examine themselves because believers who had lived in sin for so long, finally God killed them. They were asleep because of their disobedience. In 1 John chapter 2, he talks about how they left from among us because they were, that's a different story. That's not what I meant to say right there. We now have a word picture in verses 7 and 8. A word picture in 7 and 8. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Stick with the notes quickly and let me unfold this. He ends with this scary word picture. He's given very serious words about the ramifications of not growing, being put aside. 
The author immediately then follows the warning with an illustration. I want you to notice in verse 7 that the land is singular. It is a single plot of ground. It's not two kinds of soil. It's one plot of ground, and it speaks of two kinds of produce. In verse 7, it talks about the rain, and the response to the rain speaks of fruitfulness and blessing. Fruitfulness and blessing when the rain falls on it. Or, and it's useful for those for whose sake it is cultivated. People who have worked their ground. And the word and the spirit of God come on it and they receive a blessing from God. They grow good fruit. But if it, same piece of ground, if it, the ground, bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. There are three results listed if thorns and thistles grow. If you don't allow the word of God to take the soil of your life and grow good fruit, you are growing thorns and thistles. There are three things that are going to happen. Instead of a useful crop or fruit, it is useless thistles and thorns. The three results are, number one, it is worthless. Let's do our word study again. What does he mean by worthless? It's hard for me to understand. What does he mean? That's worthless. Well, We can look in this time, we recognize in the Greek text, which is hard for most of us to do, that that word translated worthless is from a Greek word that is adakamas, adakamas. Here's what's interesting. We're not going to take time to, to look there. If you're interested in this subject, you look it up in your Bible. It's easy to see. That same word, Greek word, adakamas, translated those thistles and thorns are worthless, is the same exact word that the Apostle Paul uses in worrying about himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where he says, I beat my body and bring it under subjection unless I should be disqualified, adakamas. Do you think the Apostle Paul worried about losing his salvation? I do not. But what he understood was that it would be possible for him to spend his entire life in fruitlessness or to wear good ground for Christ's sake could produce, he produced thistles and thorns and it would amount to nothing for all of eternity. Adakamas. And so it means worthless. It means unapproved or disapproved. Unapproved or disapproved. It means to be judged as of no value. So if you take your thistles and your thorns to the farmer's market, other than somebody who wants to make cool decorations out of it and hang on a stone fireplace, it's worthless. And so the agriculture word picture in here is they're going to burn it. But notice before that, he says, okay, back to verse 8, but if it bears thorns and thistles, number one, it is adakamas, it is worthless. It is judged to be of no value. And it is, notice the next phrase, It is near to being cursed. It is near. It's not cursed. It's near to being cursed. In other words, someone who accepts Christ never grows, never gets off of uh, their understanding of the fundamentals, lives their entire life with thistles and thorns and does not bear good fruit on their soil. He is so close to his pagan neighbor who does burn burn in hell. He barely makes it, though as by fire, Paul says in Corinthians. It is near to being cursed. Thirdly, its end is to be burned. 
the agricultural picture here, word picture here, is of a field where the thistles and thorns have taken over. So what they're going to do is burn it. Farmers do this today in some places, and they understand it. Burn the thistles. It enriches the soil. The rain comes, and hopefully we can get a better crop this time. And in the end, it is to be burned. The purpose of burning the land was to get rid of the thistles and thorns so good fruit could grow. And this, if we had time, would take us to 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 15, where the Apostle Paul talks about a day when we're going to come to the end of our lives and all of our works are going to be stacked before the Lord. And he's going to evaluate what did you do with the gospel? What did you do with the transformation of life? What did you do to grow? How have you been part of being a good steward of the pearl of great pride? What have you done with the talents of your life? And it's going to be tested as it were by fire. And if it's hay, wood, and stubble, it's going to burn. If it's gold and silver and precious stone, it will last. I think that's what Paul's talking about here. Conclusion, listen closely. Number one, responding to God's word and growing in godliness really matters. Spiritual immaturity leads to disobedience. Spiritual maturity brings blessing. Here's part of the seriousness. Listen to me. If you are not growing spiritually today and you are immature spiritually, it's likely that you really don't care. That's partly why. That's like the the Israelites or you're too lazy or you don't, whatever. But spiritual immaturity will ultimately lead to disobedience, and disobedience ultimately leads to you re-crucifying Christ, acting like his crucifixion never did you any good. And it removes the blessing of God from your life, both in this life and when you stand before his throne at the Bema. Secondly, know with confidence that our New Testament teaches that genuine believers in Christ are eternally secure. If you're a genuine believer in Christ, you don't have to worry about your salvation is secure. You need to examine yourself. The Bible says that over and over. But we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And by the way, number three, if you are worried that you might have committed the unpardonable sin, the very fact that you care about that this morning means you have not. People who have committed the unpardonable sin, and it is possible to commit that, is a person who hates God, can't doesn't care less about what God thinks, blasphemes Jesus, blasphemes God, blasphemes the Holy Spirit, and they've given every opportunity to be saved up, and they, they are happy about it. And if the, even if you told them, you're going to die in a minute, pal, they would still laugh and say, good, I'm going to hell. That's a person who's committed the unpardonable sin. And they die, there's no pardon. Fourthly, It is true that unbelievers can look like believers and fall away into sin. So don't be deceived here. It is true that a believer can look like a non-believer. That would be Judas as an example. And here's the first John 2, 19 I was referencing early, earlier, where, out of line, where they went out from among us. Why? Because they never were one of us. People who were part of us obviously were not believers because of the way they went out from among them in first John It is true that they can fall away into sin. It's just not what Hebrews 6.6 is teaching. It's just not what this passage is teaching. Number five, Christians can commit serious sin without being disqualified from eternal life and yet suffer consequences both in this life and in the eternal kingdom. When we stand before Christ, 
we will care deeply. You say, all I care about, PV, is getting into heaven. I'm going to tell you something. There is a day you're going to care about not growing spiritually, and you're going to care when your works are burned up. And you're going to care when you stand before the Lord, and it's going to look as though you just re-crucified him over and over in your lifetime because you never grew spiritually. And it's scary to think the point of the passage is that God, if God permits, if God permits, like he didn't permit the Israelites to get into the promised land, the place of rest, it is possible that if you are determinedly stuck in your immaturity and you don't care, God will come to a place where he kind of just leaves you out of commission or takes you out of commission and you can no longer grow and mature. It's over for you. And you've wasted your life. Don't waste your life. Grow in Christ. Know the joy of walking with Christ and growing. It will matter someday. Let's stand together and pray. I want somebody to find out who all the children's workers are this morning and I'm going to get them all ice cream, okay? I'm serious. I need somebody to find out who's on today. Please be kind to them when you go pick up your kids and please be patient with your pastor. I'm kind of new at this, okay? All right, Father, we turn to you. And this was a serious passage of scripture, Lord. And we've been drilling and blasting and trying to figure it out and it's still fuzzy. But Father, regardless, different study Bibles say different things and it's confusing. Clearly, to not grow spiritually is incredibly significant. And so would you help us as your church here at Fellowship Bible Church to take seriously following after Christ, conforming to his image, growing in our knowledge of the word, letting the rain fall on our soil and bringing forth good fruit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. Stack the chairs. Say goodbye to the Zunigas.